Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we'll learn about the state of the natural groceries market in Colorado after local chain Alfalfa's closed all but one of its stores. Plus, we'll take a look at how increased traffic at our state parks is impacting wildlife. We've definitely seen a lot more trash at our state parks and just heavier use in general. And we'll hear how two Mountain West authors built a pandemic relationship through letters. That and more coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Even though more than 1.3 million Coloradans are now fully vaccinated against COVID-19, officials are urging the public to stay vigilant with safety precautions. At a press conference Tuesday, Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment's Executive Director Jill Hunsaker-Ryan said coronavirus infections are increasing, including from variant strains of the virus. Some appear to be more contagious and potentially less effective against a vaccine. And we now estimate that more than half of all cases occurring in Colorado are due to what the CDC has termed variants of concern. A model from the Colorado School of Public Health estimates that one in 196 Coloradans are currently infected. It also shows that 30 percent of Colorado's population is currently immune due to either vaccination or infection. Ryan said mobility is reaching its highest level since the start of the pandemic, and that's part of what's driving cases up. I think people are getting excited to move about, but we have to remember that we have not reached herd immunity yet. In order to prevent a spike in hospitalizations and deaths, Ryan said the state needs to maintain the same level of transmission control, which includes wearing masks and social distancing, for at least the next month. And by then, maybe Coloradans can be able to relax some of the behaviors that have been so critical in controlling the state's epidemic. Colorado state parks, as well as public lands like state forests, have seen a huge bump in visitors over the last year, presumably because of the pandemic. And while getting into the great outdoors can leave us, humans, feeling restored and relaxed, our recreation has an impact on our environment, from the trail itself to the wildlife that reside nearby. In many cases, the uptick in visitation has exacerbated problems that park officials have been combating for decades. For more on the impact this is having on public lands in the state, Colorado Edition producer Ray Solomon spoke with Travis Duncan, statewide public information officer with Colorado Parks and Wildlife. What impact has all that extra traffic had on the state's parklands? The amount of use we were seeing at our state parks was was increased so much um, that it was really tough for our, our staff to keep up with it. You know, all our public lands in Colorado saw that kind of use uh, in places like, you know, BLM land or U.S. Forest Service, all of our land saw so much increased use. We've definitely seen a lot more trash uh, at our state parks and just heavier use in general. So, you know, last year, Ray, we we really had a big campaign to let folks know just the impacts we were seeing as far as trash and encourage folks to bring their own trash bags when they could. Please do not leave their dog waste bags on the side of our trails. Make sure they're they're not leaving any trace that they were there. So, 
you know, we're protecting our natural resources. Can you explain why it's so important to not leave trash next to a garbage can or try to stuff it in on top of an already overflowing garbage can? A lot of our bins, especially at state parks, are designed so that animals can't get into them, uh, so that animals don't become accustomed to, to eating human food. So if a deer or if a bear becomes accustomed to finding human food sources, then they will come back to that source. They become accustomed to humans. They're not afraid of humans. And as lots of folks know, if if a bear isn't afraid of humans anymore, then that becomes a problem. That animal is no longer wild. That animal can be a danger to humans. And so it's important for folks to know in order to keep wildlife wild, we need to keep them away from human food sources. They need to eat what's natural for them to eat in their environment and to not become too accustomed to us. What about, say, trail conditions. How are those impacted here? We've had such a such a high use of our parks that all our trails are seeing a, a heavier impact as well. So we're encouraging folks to stick to the trails. We always do that, but but it's especially important now because because when you leave the trail you can you can impact sensitive habitat. I think in July of July of 2020 versus July of 2019, just our state park visitation was with something like a million more users. And what types of activities have the greatest impact on the parks? Hiking and biking all have an impact. And what one thing we say at Parks and Wildlife is that all recreation has an impact, right? So I don't, I don't want to say that this activity is worse than that activity, but certain trails are designed for certain uses. So if you enjoy OHV riding, you, you shouldn't take that OHV on a trail that's not designed for it. And the same with with equestrian use or with mountain biking or things like that. Let's talk trail etiquette. There are a lot of different kinds of activities happening in the parks, like you mentioned, activities that can sometimes, well, collide with each other. Talk me through the basics of sharing the trail and keeping everybody safe. The kind of basic rules of yielding to other users. So, you know, if you're a hiker, you you yield to equestrian users. And if you're a, a mountain biker, you should yield to hikers and to and to horseback riders. And basically everyone yields to horseback riders. But if you have someone coming uphill, it's good to common courtesy to step to the side if you can and let them pass and just be kind to one another out there. You know, pay attention to your your county ordinances in terms of the pandemic, you know, mask up, be considerate of others while we're in this stressful time. And then, of course, it's important to keep the parks clean. You referred to the principles of leave no trace. Can you explain what that's all about? The whole idea is to to leave things as you found them. That's the basic idea. So the first principle, Ray, is plan ahead and prepare. Look it up online, find maps, know where you're going, know what's allowed in that area, know what the risks are for that area. Another one that we've talked about is dispose of waste properly, right? It's uh, If you're going into the backcountry, uh, pack out your waste, leave nothing behind. That idea of not leaving a trace. Everything you bring in, every wrapper, everything you have on you comes back out with you, leave nothing behind. Another leave no trace principle is to travel and camp on durable services. A big thing for Parks and Wildlife, one of the principles is is to respect wildlife. Folks want to get out there and take photos, and we definitely encourage folks to use binoculars and and feel free to take photos. But a tip we give to folks is the, the rule of thumb. So if you hold out your hand at arm's length, put your thumb up, your thumb should be able to cover that that deer or that moose or that bear or whatever you're looking at to be at an appropriate distance. And, and even then, if you see changes in behavior in that animal, you're potentially harassing wildlife, uh, you really need to give that animal space and back up. Leave what you find is is a leave no trace principle. And so if everyone who went into the outdoors 
took a rock, took a flower, you know, this is going to have a real impact. Million, you imagine millions of wildflowers being picked or millions of things being taken back by folks who want to have that piece of the outdoors. What are you expecting for this coming season? It's getting warmer. People are coming out to the parks again. Are you expecting another record year? You know, it's tough to say. It's it's uh, definitely a time of uncertainty um, as, you know, the vaccines are rolling out. But we're expecting it could be. So look at those leave no trace principles. Consider the impact you have on the outdoors and minimize your impact out there. Travis Duncan is a public information officer with Colorado Parks and Wildlife. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Ray. In February, Alfalfa's market closed its longtime Boulder location, attributing the decision to decrease sales and high rents. Then, in March, company leadership made the decision to close its location in Longmont. According to a statement from the company then, insufficient foot traffic contributed to a struggling store. That brings the natural grocer down to one location left in Louisville. And while Alfalfa's grapples with the blows of the pandemic, documents obtained by BizWest's Dan Micah show that Alfalfa's market is behind on millions of dollars worth of payments to vendors, painting a grim picture for the future of the company. Dan Micah joins us now with more on this. Dan, welcome. Hi, Aaron. Can you give us a bit of background for those along the Front Range who aren't familiar with Alfalfa's? What do we need to know? So Alfalfa's is like the OG natural foods market. They've been around for almost 40 years. They were, I think they had 37 years at their their first Boulder location. And it's gone under multiple different ownership groups and uh, iterations. But they were one of the cradles for this uh, industry that we have in Boulder County in particular, where there's a lot of natural and organic food makers, natural and organic product makers, uh, and, and just the fact that having a, a specific store dedicated to promoting these products along with organic milk before organic milk was really a, a consumer product or organic and GMO-free produce, that really started at Alfalfa's, and they allowed these startups and these people with just ideas of, you know, hey, what if I make like a chip out of like sweet potatoes and bake it instead of frying a russet? You know, I've heard stories of people just walking up to the manager at Alfalfa's and just saying, hey, try this and can we sell it? And they were like, yeah, and a handshake agreement. And then, you know, the business kicks off and Alfalfa's produced that for a, a long while. Well, it seems like just a few months ago in October of 2020, things were looking good for Alfalfa's. They opened a new location in Longmont. Yeah, they had three stores, their original Boulder store uh, on Broadway, really right by the University of Colorado campus and Boulder High School. They had a Louisville location that had been open for several years, and they decided to uh, take over a, a spot formerly occupied by Lucky's Market, which was a competitor in this uh, natural and organic food space. So they seemed to be on an expansion path. They had a, a new ownership group. The original founders were still minority shareholders, but a couple years earlier, a new ownership group took over and was aiming to really expand the, the name of the market and really leverage that history it had. Well, and then in just the past few months, things took a different direction. Leadership closed two locations, that Longmont store and their Boulder store. So yeah, at the time they they, uh, closed the Boulder store, I believe at the beginning of March, and said that it was mainly due to a decrease in foot traffic due to the pandemic, along with high rent rates in in that area. But at the time, uh, the president of the company, Mark Homlish, told me that they would not be closing their Longmont or their Louisville locations. But just a couple weeks later, they said that, you know, there was decreased foot traffic at their Longmont location. So they closed that just barely under six months after they first opened that store. So within the span of a couple weeks, this this business lost 
two out of the three major revenue sources that it has. Well, I know you've been following the story for many months, and you recently obtained a number of documents. What did they reveal about the situation? Right. So BizWest uh, obtained some internal documents, particularly the vendor list for the company as of mid-March that describes who they're getting their prize from and how much they owe. And usually grocery markets tend to operate on a 30-day invoice system where you, know, you can you get delivered your price on credit and then pay your vendors back. That's a fairly common system. But these documents show that uh, Alfalfa as the entire company owed just shy of $4.1 million to just over 250 vendors. And a lot of them are, you know, kind of the, the big landlords and kind of the big distributors, but a lot of them are, you know, small local startups that really rely on this cash flow. And about $2 million of that $4.1 million figure, that was more than 90 days past due, which is very late. And this kind of showed up with, with stores not being able to get groceries and not being able to get products. I spoke with several vendors on that list who said that they stopped delivering to alfalfas because they need their money. I think it, it just kind of shows probably over the longer term that alfalfas was really struggling to not just stay current on its longer term debt, but just to maintain the daily cash flows needed to run a business day to day like you do in grocery retail. And I should say, we did reach out to Alfalfas for comment. They declined to make anyone available for an interview, but they did call our figures uh, inaccurate and incomplete. But we stand it by our reporting, and we've verified it independently with vendors. I'm wondering what the company has had to say in general about this. And are they are they chalking this up to the pandemic and those kind of struggles? They did say that for, especially in the Boulder store, saying that the store had kind of become more of a convenience store than a full service grocery store. And the, a lot of the commissary, the kind of the cafeteria, you know, grab and go lunches that Boulder High and uh, CU students and faculty used to do just kind of stopped overnight because of the pandemic. And that's certainly feasible. But the thing is, the grocery business is one of the few businesses over the last year that have done really, really well, specifically because everyone had to learn how to eat at home and everyone had to cook a lot more during the pandemic. Walmart reported record sales as grocery segment. Kroger, had, which is the parent company of King Supers, had a fairly strong year. Natural Grocers, which is a publicly traded company and one of the bigger competitors as a natural chain to a company like Alfalfa's had a really good year. You know, people bought a lot of groceries and it's kind of difficult for me to sit here and just blame, you know, poor foot traffic because a lot of people were buying groceries, uh, not just at the Boulder store, but, you know, across the front range. So I think there was a lot more of a longer running issue in just trying to stay solvent with this company. Dan Micah is a reporter with BizWest. You can find a link to his reporting on this, which includes the full statements from Alfalfa's Market at our website, KUNC.org. Dan, thanks so much for talking with us. Anytime. In a note, late Wednesday afternoon, Dan Micah with BizWest received word that the company had made the decision to close the last remaining Alfalfa's location. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. We're all finding new ways to find connection during this pandemic when in-person contact is limited. Today, we're going to hear from two authors from the Mountain West about how they built a relationship during this time by writing letters. Pam Houston and Amy Irvine have released the new book, Airmail, Letters of Politics, Pandemics, and Place. Pam joins us from Colorado. Welcome. Hello. And Amy from the other side of Colorado. Also welcome. Hello. 
Would you two be willing to read a portion of a letter for us? Absolutely. Amy, you want to go first? Sure. We'll read from the last two letters of the book. And this one starts when my daughter is young. When Ruby was young, I stole away for a ski on the mountain that presides over our mesa, just the dogs and me. I meant to follow a large open draw, but a herd of mostly pregnant elk cows had bedded down in my path. I skirted them by plunging into thick timber, and while I was in the forest, the sky clouded. The wind picked up and covered my tracks, and I got totally turned around. It grew late, and there wasn't a landmark to aim for, not even the slant of sun. The dogs paced in circles, staring at me, expectant. I wished then for a guy, a father, spouse, bishop, therapist, someone to show me the way out. The wish was a fleeting one, a kind of flash fiction and an insane one, because what else do you call it when you hand over your agency, your fate, to another person? Men may not ask for directions, and that is another way I've been lost with them, but this is when I looked at Pablo and Ursa, my two crazy cow dogs, and said, go load up. They spun around and headed off in the last direction I would have chosen, but I skied after them, knowing they would obey my command to head for the car and launch themselves through the open hatchback. It was a race in the twilight, but sure enough, we found the vehicle. Dogs listen in the woods, and they lead you to safety every time. But if home proves to be a place you cannot breathe, the dogs will follow you when you leave that story too. So will those velvety herds of elk cows and the forests, the elders and saplings and every tree in between. If the guns come for us, Pam, grab your pen and notebook, your bivy sack, your flint and steel. Climb above tree line on your side of the Great Divide, which is the only thing that should separate our nation during this pandemic. And even if they don't come, head up anyway. I'll meet you there with compass, envelopes, string. We won't go alone. We'll have the dogs. We'll have mentors, students, daughters. And we'll have a few good men who are willing to walk with us, willing perhaps to play supporting characters for a while in the stories that need telling. Let's bring our ballots too. Let's fill them out and tie them to the tails of ravens passing through. Let's climb the ridge lines with the letters we've written and cast them into the dear, clear blue sky. Then let's toss that compass into some deep icy ravine that never sees the light of day because we already know exactly where we're headed. In fierce and loving sisterhood, Amy. P.S. You have proved to be another one of my favorite animals and we have yet to meet in person. And this is from my letter that follows that one. This morning on the dog walk, I realized the thing I am afraid of far more than I am afraid of dying a breathless COVID death, far more than being shot in the face by a camel wearing MAGA dude, is becoming a person who says no to the world, becoming a person who doesn't go out or hike out or speak out because prudence and my survival instincts tells me I should not. That would be the bad guys winning. That would be the bad guys winning most of all. This administration can take so many things away from us, our safety, our healthcare, our independence, our contraceptives, our freedom of movement, our livelihoods, our clean air and water, and inevitably, probably sooner than later, our right to speak. But it cannot keep us from saying yes to the world. Whether this pandemic lasts for one year or three or a decade, we will emerge knowing far better what we need to survive. Even now I can see the pencil scratching through item after item, airplane travel, hipster coffee, Wilco concert, baseball, 
what remains air water horses elk cows ravens and dogs i have always put my faith in the concrete nouns of the world but realize this list will have to include abstractions community trust direct action urgency courage sacrifice love we have not one single thing to lose by believing even now that we can build the world we want to live in and we must because time is short and inaction is death fighting for the earth and each other will be the only way to feel how alive we still are so let's save the post office let's win the election let's win all the elections Let's downshift and tap into the power I know you know we have, the strength we feel when we put our feet on hard dirt or words on these pages. Let's tend to the weary, the grieving, the hungry, to all those the system is rigged against. The earth is our ally. She always has been. Thank you for these letters, Amy. I hope there will be a thousand more. I will walk now to the back of my property where the wetland is overflowing, breathe the clean air, and wait with a piece of string and this letter. Here I am now, my eyes trained on the ridgeline to the west. In everlasting sisterhood, Pam. What do you hope that readers will get out of this collection of letters? And I'm wondering if you, you two think that this book maybe means something a little different than, say, it might have meant 20 years ago or 20 years before that. Well, I, I think we both hope that maybe some people would be inspired by our conversations and it would help them sort of find some uh, resilience, which we all have somewhere inside of us. And sometimes it takes being inspired for that to be sort of conjured up into the waking world. And, and it felt like it, it felt like we, I mean, women at the ends of the readings would come up with a stack of five, 10, 15 books and say, this is, the most alive I've felt since the first day at home orders, you know, in what was that March? And we were, we were getting texts or Facebook messages from women who said, can you just drive down this County road and meet me <laughs> in the middle of nowhere? And, you know, with 15 signed books for my book club or for all my Christmas presents. So it felt like it did some sort of galvanizing. Um, it was really an exciting time uh, to, to sort of, you know, Utah and Colorado have an extraordinary kind of beauty and these resort towns, these tourist towns, these landscapes um, can some, sometimes insulate us from the other horrors of the world. And so even the most liberal and well-informed people sometimes need a little nudge to really get out there and be as active as we need to be right now in terms of climate change, in terms of the drought in the American West, and in, certainly in terms of democratic freedoms that are even now at risk. And so, you know, sort of being the voices of that and, and seeing people sort of wake up as they've been sort of cocooned all year and just out enjoying public lands. And that was a really rewarding part. Um, we weren't sure really, but we just felt like it was something we had to try. And I think it was worthwhile. Uh, one woman in Moab told us recently, she said, this book made me, made it feel safe to think the thoughts that I was thinking. I was afraid to even think them. What sort of advice do you guys maybe have for others hoping to build a relationship during this pandemic through the, this medium we're talking about, through sending letters? 
Uh, my advice would be just do it. You know, I believe that the single biggest source of untapped energy in this country is like our women who haven't realized exactly that they can step into their own power. Um, we all know so many amazing women. Um, and I just have to believe that if we, I mean, one of the things Amy and I talk about a lot are this kind of feminization of the myth of the American West. You know, if we could stop talking about taming and fracking and extracting and fencing and breaking, you know, if, if those were not the verbs of um, our relationship to the land on the American West, and if they were more like caring for and honoring and nurturing and protecting, you know, just think how much power could be generated in that movement because there's so many of us out there who want that, who want to protect the land and the wild places and the air and the water. And we need to get together. We need to talk about that and talk about it like it's possible. And so letters during the pandemic, um, you know, for Amy and I, but for anyone could really be a source of uh, mutual inspiration. And, you know, Amy and I took turns talking each other up back into action. I'm exhausted. <laughs> and I know Amy is too, but it, you know, it was worth it. Pam Houston and Amy Irvine are the authors of a new book, Airmail, Letters of Politics, Pandemics, and Place. I want to thank you both so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us so much. That's our show for today. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our production staff includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.